you don't know me, my name is Scott, and it's a pleasure to have you with us, whether you're in the room or whether you're online. And we, I've been made aware that we've got a growing number that are seeing us online and interacting with the message, interacting with this church that way. And I'm so, so grateful for that technology. Obviously, one of the reasons we're grateful for it is in this season, this year, this two years, whatever it is of COVID, uh, we continue to want to be sensitive and aware of that. I want you to know that our shepherds, our elders, the men that lead this church, they gather weekly to pray and discern, and this is very much on their, their hearts on how do we continue to be a church and address the needs and the challenges that are before us. Right now, uh, what we're encouraging them as the leadership is that you take whatever precautions you deem necessary for you. And we want to reinforce that, whether it be the vaccine, if you feel like to, to wear a mask, we encourage that. If you, um, if you feel like you need to participate through the live stream only, we encourage that. And so we want you to feel comfortable. We want you to be aware of that. And we're praying for you as God continues to lead us through this and we continue to be the church. Second thing I want to tell you about before we jump into today's message is I've already shared this before, but I'm going to make another plea about it. We've got a seminar that I want to challenge you to be at on September 12th. And we're going to tackle the issue of how do you navigate this over-sexualized world that we live in. How do you walk through that faithfully and biblically? And if you are somebody that has any influence over a growing person, a child, a student, uh, maybe you're the parent or you've got, you're a grandparent or you're in some role of influence, a teacher, a coach, an aunt, an uncle, anything like that, I want to encourage you to be here for this because we're going to provide some great information. Robert Olsby from ACU is coming to be with this. Um, he's well studied in this, this area and is going to present some very helpful strategic things that you're going to know. You can sign up for that by going to westernhills.church. I encourage you to register uh, for that. Please do. Um, we'd love to get a great count for that because we're going to provide a meal. Uh, and all that's included free of charge. We just want you there. I have been asked, is this going to be live streamed? And we've made the decision not to live stream it because we want anybody present to feel comfortable asking whatever questions they need to ask. And we want to be a little protective of that so that, that anybody that shows up can ask some questions because there may be some that are very personal to you if you want to ask that. Once it's over, we will take parts that we feel is appropriate uh, and, and we'll make those available through recordings later. But it will not be live streamed at the moment. So we encourage you to sign up for that if you'd like to be there for that event. We are going through the Gospel of John, and we are looking at times when people came face to face with Jesus. And if this is your first Sunday with us, I really want to encourage you to back up and capture online some of these, the previous messages when you get a chance, because this is those moments where somebody walks in and encounters Jesus, and they weren't expecting him. They they weren't thinking that he's going to suddenly change their world through a simple encounter. And we look at those moments in our lives when it all changes because you faced a reality 
that either for some reason you had refused to see before, or you'd chosen not to see, or it was just covered and blind to you for some reason. Well, to jump into today's story, I'm going to share a story that I've shared before, but I love this one too much not to share it again. Back when the, uh, the prequels to Star Wars came out, and I'm a Star Wars fan, and these days, being a Star Wars fan is kind of like being a Dallas Cowboy fan, right? It's just not easy. When the prequels came out, there was one scene that the entire prequels was based on. I mean, three movies were written and created. One, to make money. Two, to get it to this one scene. Because all of us that had any kind of relationship with Star Wars were waiting for this one singer scene. Scott Seal and I, another friend, we went, um, the day that came out, we went over to clean and got early tickets, and we're sitting there. We're watching the movie, and the scene is when Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader, right? Everybody's seen it. There's no spoilers here. And we're waiting for that moment, and the scene begins, and... They shot it very well because there's the damaged body of Anakin Skywalker and there's all this science fiction medical equipment around. And they start dropping the mask, that Darth Vader mask, into place. And when that mask drops into place, you hear it click and then you hear the breath. The (sighs) breath. You know, that, that mechanized breathing that's so iconic with Darth Vader. Well, at that same moment the couple that had come in next to us, from, I don't know how they snuck this in, but from under their seats, they had pulled out Darth Vader mask. And I checked. There wasn't one under mine. I thought maybe it was a gift. They pulled, and so I'm guessing they'd already seen the movie because as the mask comes down onto Darth Vader, they don their mask in slow motion. And then in the movie, light up red lightsabers. I mean, in the theater right there with this. I thought, they are sold out to this. What they were doing is exactly what any good movie is designed to do. To find yourself caught up in the story. To find yourself identifying with something that's taking place on the screen. And I want to start with that story because it's exactly what John wants us to do when we get into today's message. We're going to jump into this story. And the question that I want you to ask as we go through this very short but yet very dramatic story is, where am I in this story? Who am I connecting with in this story? What part of the story reflects my story, because we're all in this one. Every, everyone gets to be in this one somehow, and it's an incredible moment where an unlikely person came face to face with Jesus in a very forceful way, and everything changed. This story is found in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles or have your app, I want you to turn Turn to John chapter 8. 
We're going to dive right in, and what you're going to see unfold is a moment where Jesus is teaching. And he's got a Bible study going on. And it's at the temple. And this would have been a place where he would have been known to be, and he would have been, could have been located very easily. And this Bible study is interrupted in a very dramatic way. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read just read through the story the first time, and then we'll walk back through it. It's 11 verses. Verse 1. At dawn, he, this is Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, you're going to see Jesus do this a lot. And in their society, in that culture, the teacher always sat and there's this moment, so when he sits down, it means class is beginning. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and this was a group of people that would always question the orthodoxy of Jesus. Now listen, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us, to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stepped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, that's only 11 verses long. But, but I'm going to suggest that is one of the most dramatic accounts that we have in the life of Jesus. There he is in the temple courts, perhaps maybe on some stairs like we have up here, sitting down, and people gathered around in this little makeshift Bible class amphitheater that he's got going. And he's teaching. And in a very intrusive and, I'm going to say, just violent way. These religious men, these um, keepers of the law, these Pharisees, they come in and they make a scene. And a Pharisee was a person that believed in very orthodox teaching. Now, Unfortunately, as if you've grown up in the church and you've heard lots of sermons, oftentimes we've got the Pharisees made out to be the bad guys because of reactions like what we're seeing here. But if you were to have lived in that time, you probably and you wanted to be a good church person, you probably would have admired the Pharisees because they were going to keep all the commandments. They were going to be true to the Bible, is how we would say it. They were going to be very conservative in their beliefs. And so here they come, and they make a scene. And in the middle of the scene, there's a woman. And you have to realize that 
what they've done is they've grabbed this woman and they've said, in, caught in the act of adultery. And so this is not some woman they set up an appointment with. This is not one they said, hey, we'd like to meet you at the temple at, you know, 8 a.m. They have violently grabbed her in the midst of this sin and probably did not even allow her to fully get dressed. And so there she is standing, maybe with a sheet, maybe with a robe, I'm not sure, but she is in a moment of unbelievable shame and embarrassment. And she just got drugged to church. Now, can you imagine in your worst moment, with your worst offense, in that moment, suddenly showing up in here? That's what she's experiencing. And these men are gathered around her, and and I... Pictured almost as if they kind of give her a shove and she falls at the feet of Jesus. And all she wants to do is keep her head down. She does not want to make eye contact with anybody around her. And she's clinging to whatever covering she has. And she feels exposed in every which way you can define that word. And vulnerable in every which way. And the author gives us some insight when he says these men had come to trap Jesus. What this is, is this is political theater for them. This is is a moment to sway the crowds. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to see how orthodox Jesus is going to be. Because they have a... Verse. The verse comes out of Numbers 22. And the instructions there in what would have been their Bible, the Old Testament, is that when you catch a man and a woman not married in the act of adultery or in an adulterous affair, that is a shame not just on the two involved but on the whole community. And the way you deal with that shame, because this is an honor-shame society, is that you stone them. And the stoning is a violent death by the casting of rocks at them until they die. But embedded in the idea of the stone is that as you cast the rocks, you're bringing honor back to the community. And so they've got this commandment. They've got their verse. And what they're going to do is they're going to throw this woman in front of Jesus. And they're doing this in a very public setting with his followers around him. Because they want to see how orthodox he is. They want to see if he lines up with their definition of Scripture. And that's why they throw her down and they say to him, the law of Moses says this. This is They're quoting, they're citing this verse in Numbers. It says that we should stone him, stone her. Before we do that, we want you to weigh in on it. We want you to cast the deciding vote. We want to know where you stand on this. You see, they don't see a person in the woman. They see a theological debate. They see a political discussion. They see a statistic, an issue. Jesus, 
how would you handle this issue? They don't see this woman in front of them. They see an opportunity to leverage her on their behalf. And Jesus does this incredibly wonderful, unexpected thing. Because if you throw questions like that at me, I go back on the defensive real fast. And I start thinking, what's my position? What do I say? How do I? And my anxiety level goes through the roof. Jesus begins, he says he stoops down and he begins to write on the ground. And I'm assuming just whatever dirt and dust there was, he just begins to write. And this throws them all off. Because they're expecting a debate. They're expecting to either confirm that he's with them or confirm that he's against them. And either way, they're going to see that as a positive. Because they're not sure where he stands. They want to know. And he puts this pause in there. And there's a moment. And I believe Jesus uses that moment To let them reflect. Maybe we don't know what he wrote. I would love to know what he wrote. One theory that's out there is that he wrote the name of the man involved because you notice that he's suspiciously absent. The law says both are to be condemned. So there's a real possibility that this is all a setup because they needed bait. To take out Jesus. But after this, what I'm going to call this holy moment, he stands and says, The first one without sin can cast the stone. And I notice in the scripture it says this it says, The oldest ones walked away first. And I'm just going to say, Why? Because they were the wisest there. They knew what had just happened. They knew they had just been called out. And I picture them actually holding these rocks that they were ready to um, execute the sentence with. And I just, in my imagination, I wonder if the only sound this woman heard was rocks dropping to the ground. One by one. Till you get down to the youngest, the most zealous, the ones that this was probably their very first time to be in something this dramatic, and they were all eager to go. They were going to prove their faithfulness, to prove their fundamental beliefs. And suddenly, they see their older, wiser ones walking away, and they don't know anything to do but follow suit. And what had been a crowd now becomes two people. And I picture that the woman has not even looked up yet. Because she still doesn't know if rocks are going to come her way. And Jesus lifts her up and says, where are those that have accused you gone? She says, I don't know. No one's here. He says, then I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. See, it's at that moment, though, that you and I, we both want Jesus to say something different. 
at least you just give her a lecture, right? I mean, let's, let's talk about this. You know, you know, get her to a seminar. Come on, Jesus. That's how we solve these problems. And Jesus does something incredibly different. He extends this mercy and this grace. At the moment that she is in her most shameful place. Where do you find yourself in the story? I'm just going to walk you through a couple things that I think are helpful. And I hope that these are encouraging to you as you take away. And some of them are going to be challenging to us as well. If the place where you see yourself in the story is you're that woman, because as I'm talking up here, you're so aware of the sin and the brokenness and the bad decisions and perhaps even the crimes that you've committed. And you feel that shame and you feel that guilt. And because of that, you've bought into a belief or you've bought into a lie that's been told you that says, I've got to get myself right before God can love me. What Jesus is telling this woman and is telling you and I, and this is the first one I want you to take away, is Jesus loves you more than you know. And he loves you more than you've done. He loves you more than you know, and He loves you more, oh, so much more than you've done. We can easily be lulled into the belief that my sin is so large that Jesus can't handle it. That, that Jesus isn't big enough for it. And what comes back from this face-to-face encounter with Jesus is, in this woman, when she's caught in the... He never says she's innocent. See, this is not a debate. Is she innocent or not? Is she wrongfully accused or not? No. She's guilty. She's in shame. But it's still not bigger than Jesus' love for her. Second thing. You won't know how much God loves you till you let him love you. See, we let our past dictate our future, don't we? We let all of the guilt and everything that I've ever done tell me, or Satan tells me, God's not going to love you that much. God can't love you. He can't reach you. You've fallen too far out. Or He's going to love you, but there's going to be an asterisk on it. And there's going to be conditions on this. And this is where I want Jesus to give her the lecture. But He doesn't. Because there is no asterisk on it. And we allow that thinking to let us run from God because he can't possibly love me that much. And what I'm going to suggest today, no, I'm going to proclaim today, that until you stop running from God and you allow yourself to experience the love that he has for you, you have no idea how much he loves you. But in the moment of allowing his love to take over all that you've ever done, and all that you ever will do, and all that's broken about you, and all that's hurtful about you, and all that's shameful about you, and all that's guilt-ridden about you, until you allow Him to deal with that, you'll have no idea how much He loves you. Where do you find yourself in this story?
Because for many of us, we also find ourselves standing in the crowd. I've got rocks in my hands. Because I think I know what's right. And I think I know what's best. And I can play a very simple game that says, all I have to do is be better than you. And I'm okay. See, we're so quick to look out and around us, aren't we? And as long as I can find somebody that's more of a retrobate than I am, I'm okay. Because I think by comparison, I fare pretty well. And so I find myself in that crowd. And, and Jesus is reaching in, a hand of mercy, and I'm ready to condemn and why am I ready to condemn? And this is, this is a difficult one for us. Because the Pharisees were right. They were absolutely correct. They had a verse and they had the right interpretation. Jesus never disputes that in this story. But what Jesus is doing is he is now putting himself over and above in this is significant over and above the law. And he is now the one that gets to interpret the law. In fact, later in John, at the end, when he has the, the final supper, the Passover meal with, with his disciples, he's going to say these profound words. He says, a new commandment I give to you. He's giving them a new law. Love one another as I have loved you. And so he is now putting something that precedes the law, that overcomes the law. Because what the Pharisees are struggling with that day in the crowd, and what I struggle with so much is this fact. It is possible to love the commandment more than you love the God who gave the commandment. They had their commandment. And their commandment drove to see the woman as a political pawn to be used. And so, the question for us, as a church and as a people, when we encounter those that are struggling in their sin, struggling with this brokenness, struggling with this this shame, when we extend our hand, will it be with a stone or with mercy? That's what Jesus is doing in the middle of the picture. He's extending his hand with mercy. Because Jesus has something that I think we need to pursue. And we need to come to understand. Because what Jesus does is he is able, he is able to extend both grace and truth. Grace and truth. He's able to hold on to those two things apparently without feeling the contradiction or the tension. For us, it gets a little weird, doesn't it? Because we think we need to fall on one side or the other. Fall on too much grace, you're not standing for something. Fall on too much truth, we feel legalistic. And this is a difficult tension. I'm, I'm acknowledging the tension here. 
that Jesus, fully God, fully man, was able to extend both grace and truth in that moment. So, Because one of the questions that the Pharisees were going to ask of Jesus is, so are you going light on sin? So does sin not, not matter? Does, does it not matter that there's a marriage here that's breaking up, Jesus? Do you not care about marriage? Do you stand for anything? And obviously, all of that breaks Jesus' heart. He's not going light on it. Because what Jesus knows in that moment is that it's going to cost a great deal her sin. And what he also knows is he's going to pay the price. And so the very one that could condemn says, I'm not going to condemn you. Because he knows he's going to be the one that pays the price. All the guilt and all the shame he's going to receive onto himself. And what we do is we struggle with it because it looks like and it sounds like cheap grace, doesn't it? That, that's just cheap grace. There's, there's, we're just handing it out. She doesn't deserve grace. We're just giving it to her. Right. That's what grace is. And it's just been given to you, too. A few years back, this incredible image was meaningful to us all. And it's the, you recognize it as the image of Brant Jean, the brother of Botham Jean, who was tragically killed by Amber Geiger in his apartment. And after the trial and after the sentencing, when Brant, his younger brother, got to take the stand and do what they call a witness statement, we were all riveted by the moment where he asked the judge if he can give a hug to his brother's killer and says, I forgive her. And the judge granted it, with tears in her eyes, granted it. And we have this unforgettable image. And when we see that, it moves us somehow, right? There's something we know, something's at work in in that moment. And none of us would suggest to Brandt, well, that's just cheap grace that you extended. Because we know full well the price that he paid for that moment. Jesus is the one that stands in the circle that I hope we find ourselves not as him, but in him in the story is the one that was going to lay down his life, stretch out his arms, and for whatever shameful, messed up, broken thing is in your life, and all the shameful, messed up, broken things in my life, he's going to say, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. If you would, let me stand. Stand with me let me pray for you, please. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song, Amazing Grace. It's the version where we talk about, are we in chains anymore? 
So I'm going to pray that we're no longer in chains by this thinking, no longer in chains by this mentality that says, God can't love me enough. Heavenly Father, what a moment to come face to face with Jesus. So Father, I confess all the times that I'm just like the woman exposed in my guilt and my shame and my regret. And there stands Jesus reaching in with the shouts of the crowd reaches in, extends mercy and grace. So Father, I pray for anyone that's hearing this message here or online that that's their story. And they feel that exposed, they feel that guilty, that ashamed for a one-time or a lifetime of regret. That in this moment, they would see, they would come face to face with Jesus and know that He stands there as the one that loves them beyond all imagination and extends the hand of mercy. Father, I pray for us as a church. And pray for you help us to get this right. To be a church that extends both grace and truth in the moment. And that we would extend the mercy and not throw the stones. Father, I pray. A prayer of gratitude for the one that laid down his life. That this story is even possible. And not that it just happened once so long ago, but that it would happen again today in each of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray and we give thanks. Amen.